Good evening, church. You can turn in your Bibles to Joshua 9. As Pastor Luke said, that's where we are in our series. And the theme of Joshua 9 so far has been God saves, God leads, God gives, God keeps his promises. What's so beautiful about the book of Joshua is that we learn that God does these things not because of us, but despite us. Joshua 9, to give us some context, it's a time of war. We know later in Joshua, the land will be distributed. It will be conquered. But right now, they're clearing out the land. They're clearing out the land, and specifically, seven nations that Israel was told of, hoping to clear the land that it would be the inheritance they would receive. So they conquered Jericho. Then they had the story of Achan. They took over AI, and Pastor DT preached last week about covenant renewal, and that's what leads us to Joshua 9. You see, they, we, we've seen weakness from within with Achan. We've seen plenty of war with AI, but now is the weariness of a, an ally, Gibeon, and the Gibeonites. We see this scene where they're to be at war, and yet they let down their guards and they completely forget the Lord. For us today, our stories are similar. It's easy to belong to God and yet forget who God is. It's easy to say that God is our leader and yet not let God lead the way. So tonight's text in Joshua 9, it's a story of caution. It's a story of great tragedy, but even greater mercy. So I'll be reading all 27 verses of Joshua 9. I'll be reading from the ESV, Please read along with me. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the, Pe the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all the provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp, in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our homes as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. 
These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because of the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do, do it to us. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Pray with me. Lord, we need eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to understand. Lord, our story is the story of the Gibeonites and of Israel. We need to be reminded of your heart of mercy. Give us transformational worship through the preaching of your word. Pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. April of 1912, it was called the Queen of the Atlantic. 882 feet long. 46,000 pounds, navigating the waters 26 miles per hour. The problem wasn't that it ignored seven warnings about icebergs. The problem wasn't the inspections done too quickly. It wasn't cruisemen not paying attention. It wasn't ignoring a lifeboat drill. It was the pride thinking that a ship couldn't sink. The Titanic was proclaimed from travelers to cruisemen to the captain himself, unsinkable. Even Captain Edward Smith is quoted saying, God himself couldn't sink this ship. And because of their deception, 1,500 people lost their lives. The peril of pride and deception is that tragedy is right before our eyes, and yet we don't see it. Deception is like an iceberg in the sense that it seems small, harmless, and yet underneath is weighty, dangerous, consequential destruction. 
The Gibeonite deception is the iceberg that sunk Israel's hopes of driving the enemies out of the promised land. They were there to conquer them, and yet they were tricked. And this is speaking to our own hearts and how I said earlier, we say God is our leader, and yet we are deceived day in, day out. Because we so easily lose our way, we must consult God. And that's what leads us to the two points in the bulletin, a juxtaposition between our heart and God's. We must consult God because we love deception. We love living in pride. We love ignoring icebergs. And yet we must also consult God because his heart loves deliverance. So point number one, where do we see this in the text? We must consult God because we love deception. Looking at verse one, there is a great emphasis given to people hearing what God has done, and it promotes two different reactions. On one hand, you have six of the seven enemies of God mentioned. It's emphasizing they're coming together in one accord because they heard what happened to Jericho, they heard what happened to Ai, and they don't need to wait anymore to see what might happen to them. And so despite their differences in their nationality, as the text says, their differences in geography from the hill country to the coastlands, they are coming together for one purpose, to destroy Joshua and Israel. And yet in verse three, we learn of these cities within the Hivite nation called the Gibeonites. And while the other nations are gearing up for fighting, Gibeon is gearing up for faking. They also heard what God had done. And so they take on with their back against the wall, a great plan of deception. And this great plan is given half of the chapter, emphasizing the links that they would go to for survival. It's, it's captivating. It's something that is attesting to the ears and the eyes and the hearts and the hands. Start in verse four, as the Gibeonites are sending a delegation it says that they were acting with cunning. Other versions say they planned a ruse or they're operating craftily or the King James Version, a word you don't hear too often. They went about wilily. What is this all about? It's because they know they will die unless they can deceive. And so a delegation is sent and they are, they are in need of an Academy Award to pull this off. In verse four and five, we see how they attest to the eyes. Worn out sacks, wineskins worn out, worn out sandals, worn out clothes. They have to look the part. Later on in verse six, they attest to the ears. They say to Israel and Joshua, we've come from a distant country. We've come from far away. They're saying the, really the only thing that could save them because in the law in Deuteronomy 20, it gives instruction for peace with foreigners who are from far away. And so they're saying the only thing that Israel could hear that would not leave, lead to war. There's some questioning from the leaders. Who are you? Where are you from? And surely they had planned an answer in case there was pushback. And so they attest to the heart of Joshua, and they attest to the heart of Israel. What do we see in verses 7 through 11? We are your servants. Doesn't that sound nice? We're your servants. And what else do they say? They talk about the glory of God. 
They, they talk about what he did in Egypt, in the kings, after crossing the Red Sea. They speak of the power of the Lord that had to sound really good to the hearts of Israel. They talk about the wonders of what God has done, and they make careful uh, note to not mention any of the recent miracles God has done. Because remember, they're from far away. They're only talking about what happened to Sihon and Og. They don't mention anything that's happened in the land of Canaan, but only that in Egypt. And to really pull the strings of the heart, look at verse 11. So our elders and all of the inhabitants, all of us, they said, take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a covenant with us. They attest to the eyes, the ears, the hearts, and lastly, the hands. Verse 12 through 14. This bread was warm, now it's dry. These wineskins were new, they've burst. Look at it. Feel it for yourself. And so what do we see in verse 14? The men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. To emphasize the depth of deception in which we love, let's not forget what was preached last week. Look with me at the last verse of chapter 8. Covenant renewal amongst these people. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And yet, it sounded right, it looked right, it felt right, and so they went for it. They didn't consult the Lord, and Israel operated, leaving God completely out of the equation. Isn't this what we do with sin? Isn't, isn't this what we do with the temptation in our lives? Things seem right. Others do it. It looks right. It feels right. And we just completely forget about God. Evil is simple, small, daily covenants. We make them, and we treat them like they won't bring danger and destruction. They operate just like icebergs. Oxford, Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis, he writes about this in one of his books, maybe you've heard of it before, The Screwtape Letters. It's 31 letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood. And the point of the letters is he's giving him advice on how to be a good demon, how to undermine God's word. He's talking to Wormwood who's anxious to do some sort of large, profound wickedness to deter God's people. And yet Screwtape gives him this advice. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. The Gibeonite deception is meant to cause us to look at our lives and ask the question, what is in my life that I need to consult the Lord about? If we really love deception, what should we consult God about? The answer is everything. 
Everything in our lives, my life, your life, everything in our lives we should take to him. We should hold under the scope of his light. As the psalmist says in Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. If we really love deception, then all parts of our life, we should say, have I oriented this around kingdom purposes? Am I building this around the authority of God's word? What you wear, what you eat, your relationships, your time, what you spend and what you say, what you drink, what you do, how you do it, all things in our life, we should be asking the question, am I consulting God? Is he directing my steps? As to not be a vague pastor who leaves all the power to you to see, have you consulted God? I wanted to offer one specific thing that as a church we could leave here tonight considering that I believe speaks to the youngest in this room and the oldest, screens and technology. Have you ever lost a phone? <laughs> Forget losing a phone, have you ever lost your phone charger? Have you ever been frustrated because the TV isn't working? Have you seen yourself when you can't log into the Wi-Fi? Screens and technology are a great thing that we could leave here at night and say, is this something that I'm honoring God with? Am I wisely handling my relationship with screens and technologies? Whether you are someone who plays video games or you don't have time for video games because you're too busy working incessantly handling your life with screens in front of you, we need to ask the question, is this something that's actually destroying me because it feels right, looks right, and sounds right? And I hope that you don't feel condemnation. Trust me, I love that the Atlanta Hawks are in the Eastern Conference Finals. My wife and I, we love our Disney Plus subscription. But we need to ask the question, am I letting wisdom guide my interaction with technology? Whether it's for entertainment, is it incessant in my life? Is my time connecting with others really me on my laptop, connecting with work? We need to ask the question, how are we wisely operating with everything in our lives, consulting God, knowing, to use the words of C.S. Lewis, murder is no better than Netflix if Netflix can do the trick. And I want to encourage you all, and those who are watching online as you're tuning into live stream, you've done well to come to corporate worship because this is the place where we have that covenant renewal that we heard about last week. This is the place where we are reminded of the truth of the gospel. Even as we sing truth, we're reminded of which way to go in a world looking to deceive us. And yet, as we just sang, tomorrow morning, no matter how great our worship experience is tonight, we will be prone to wander. And yet, if you are in Christ, you will also wake up to new mercies, which takes us to my last point, point number two. We must consult God because he loves deliverance. He loves delivering us so much. That's why we can say the theme is God saves, God leads, God gives. God keeps his promises. Even when we fail, he delivers. So I want to highlight how he delivers both Israel and Gibeon. Let's start with Israel. Verse, a few different verses, five times. 8, 9, 11, 23, and 24. All of them share one thing in common. They each use a specific word, servant. You see, Gibeon tricked Israel 
But part of their story before the covenant was made was, we are your servants. And the reality is, this is true deliverance to Israel because every indicator is that they meant it. They meant that they were gonna be their servants. They take that posture before the covenant and they take that posture when they've been found out. They could have been slaughterers, but they were servants. And though that might not seem extremely impressive, we need to remember the context. In the next chapter, Joshua 10, verse 2, you'll learn something very significant about Gibeon. These weren't pawns on a chessboard, cowards. They, these aren't the scared, scaredy cats of the land of Canaan who are begging Israel, please, please, please. These were warriors. It's said of Gibeon that it's a royal city, a great city, a people stronger than AI, and all of its men are warriors. If you've seen the movie 300, it makes me think of the, the statement that their profession is fighting. If you were a man, you were a warrior. These are the people who have made a covenant of Israel and now are saying, we're here to serve you. Whatever you want to do to us, do it. So there's deliverance there. And then ultimately we will learn through Joshua 21, chapter 21, and Joshua 23, that despite this covenant and despite this deception, Israel, at least for a time, they were given peace. They were given distribution of the land. The ramifications of Gibeon and other nations unfold way more chaotically in the book of Judges, but ultimately there is great deliverance given to Israel. And, and the ultimate deliverance being the immediate fact they were not slaughtered. But what about Gibeon? How were they shown deliverance from God? This clear enemy belonging to the Hivites, how did they taste mercy? Well, first we can look at verse three and verse 24. Both talk about how Gibeon heard of who God was and heard of what God had done. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. I love the ESV's translation of verse 24. When Joshua, who's clearly upset, clearly heartbroken, filled with rage, says to them, why did you do this? Why? They say in verse 24, it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. This is very similar to what Sam Ivey preached about in May with Rahab. This is an enemy of God, but this is faith that God will keep his word. God is giving them certain faith and the deliverance continues with verse 15, 18, 20, 26. We see this tension when they've been found out when their cunning plan has been revealed and Israel wants to kill them. And yet, though tricked, they're protected. Each of those verses, 15, 18, 20, and 26, emphasize that they were not touched, that though they were an enemy, they were protected, that though this nation, these four cities of Gibeonites, Israel just wanted to destroy them. But the leader said, We've made a covenant with God, and we will keep our word. And so they aren't killed, 
And in verse 21, 23, and 27, we see that they are made cutters of wood and drawers of water, not just for the people of God, but also for the house of the Lord, for the altar of the Lord. And so they're given not only complete deliverance, but they're given clarified duty. They go from enemies of God to instantaneously servants of God. Enemies of God to servants of God. Serpent-like sinners to sons and daughters. This is a corporate, magnified, national picture of what happened to Rahab. They survived despite allowing, Israel survives despite allowing an enemy of warriors into their camp. And yet the Gibeonites are delivered because they joined Rahab in being someone who heard of what God would do and acknowledged it. And the reason we have the, the words in, this, in 26 where it says, the end of 26, they did not kill them, but they were given this duty that lasts to this day is because this clarified duty isn't something that lasted three weeks. It's not something that just lasted for the book of Joshua, but yet this overwhelming, uncomfortable mercy, it exists through the rest of the Gibeonites' legacy. There are mighty men of David who are Gibeonites. Saul is greatly judged for breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites. Even in post-exilic times, hundreds of years later, this oath in Joshua 9 is kept with Nehemiah and Ezra in post-exilic times, Gibeonites are included in helping rebuild the temple and the wall. Last summer, literally this month, last summer, I'm trying to think of the, the, the best word I've been mulling over to use would be concerned. My wife, Erica, was concerned for me. I was finishing seminary. I was doing an incredible amount of reading and writing. And she said to me, you need to read a fiction book. So uh, my personality, I had asked some people, what are great books that you've read? And I had heard a lot about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I read Frankenstein. Uh, that's what I did with my summer. Uh, it is an amazing book. Many of you, have, everyone here has probably heard of Frankenstein before, but Victor Frankenstein is not the monster. He's the man who created the monster. And in Mary Shelley's book, the monster is referred to as the creature. When you read the book, you, you're reading of the end of the book. Victor Frankenstein is found dying from hypothermia. He's found by a cruise ship by a captain named Robert Walton who is taking a crew on a pioneering mission to find the North Pole. And they find this man alone in the ice dying. And that's when he tells his tale of his education, of his life, of his family, of his creating the monster. And he's telling the story, you can do the math in the book, he's telling the story as a 27-year-old or 28-year-old. But he looks like he's 50 or 60. He's dying of hypothermia. He's completely worn out. He's heartbroken, he's tired, and he's near death. And what you learn in this story is this monster he created, it killed his little brother, William. It killed his best friend, Henry. It killed on the night of his wedding, his wife, Elizabeth. And even the grief killed his father. And so Victor Frankenstein committed the rest of his life to hunting the monster, 
devoted to finding the monster and destroying him. He goes from Switzerland to Italy, the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea, and the grasslands of Russia, all the way to the ice tundra of the North Pole where he's found dying. Eventually, Robert Walton tells Frankenstein, we're leaving, we're not going forward, men on my boat are dying and we're turning around, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you find the monster. And Frankenstein says, that's fine, leave me behind, I will not stop until I find the monster. Soon after, he dies. The book's meant to make us feel really, really uncomfortable with his hatred for this monster, with his devotion of traveling on foot all over the world to find it. And this is our God. It's meant to make us uncomfortable when we read Joshua 9, that God would show such great mercy to a people who two chapters prior are declared utter enemies. It's meant to make us uncomfortable how God pursues with so much mercy, so much devoted deliverance, those that are far off. And yet, this is the heart of God. I brought up Joshua 8.35 so that we could see that there is not only important observations in the text, but surrounding the text. The same can be said of Joshua 10. Now, I don't want to speak too much into whoever's preaching Joshua 10, but when you think about the book of Joshua and you consider what it's famous for, I would argue one of the most famous things in Joshua is the scene where Joshua prays, O son, stand still. You remember this. The, the son stands still in the battle where Joshua and Israel are at war. But the heart of God is shown in that verse only when you read Joshua 9, because the prayer isn't, O oh God, son, stand still. The beauty of that day was, O oh son, stand still over Gibeon. You see, that is the heart of God. And that is the, that is the heart of God's people. Looking at people who are enemies, experiencing the forgiveness, the reconciling love of God, and yet one chapter later, being defended. There's, there's no, you have to earn your way here. But immediately from the moment the covenant is made, they are defended by Israel. We see this uncomfortable mercy, this heart of God even more with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is amazing because he doesn't, he's not capable of being deceptive. And yet, he can't be deceived, and yet he would willingly be betrayed. There's mercy in Jesus because on the cross, the sin that he paid for is for anyone who struggles with deceiving and anyone who would be deceived. Jesus on the cross, he takes on the sin of deceptors, and he allows them to become sons and daughters. So, as God is preserving us for our promised land, and as we are living under him and his love to deliver us, I want to answer a second question. If point one is answering, what am I to consult God about? Point two is answering this. How do I consult him? The answer is that if, if we can be deceived by anything, therefore we should want to put before him everything, we should have the same tenacity 
and taking advantage of all the means of grace he gives us. So I just want to go through a few of them. One would be scripture. This is what Joshua was told in Joshua 1.8. Read the word, study the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word. Why? Because we live in an age of deception. The sacraments. We believe in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. This text is one of the greatest texts in the Bible that highlights man's longing to see and feel and taste and hear. What are the sacraments? They're signs and seals that keep us going forward in a time in which Satan is longing to destroy us. We've given, been given the Spirit. A really humbling question to consider is, does my life look any different without the Spirit of God? We've been given the Spirit that we might pray to God, that we might ask God to give us wisdom as we make decisions, as we handle the things in our life. And then another one, the last one I would want to highlight is, God loves delivering us so much, he's given us sons and daughters. He's given us a spiritual community. He's given us the body of believers. This is what we've been going through in morning service with Ephesians, the enduring community, the Pauline theology of one another. If we, if we don't under, if, if, we, if we understand how much we want to deceive others or be deceived, we won't underestimate how, how much we might fall away, and therefore we'd give them everything. But if we, if we could only know this God of, of the Israelites, the one who shows mercy even to Gibeon, we wouldn't undervalue his people, because it is his people that is often, using his words, the primary means of delivering us. That's why we need to do life together. If you look at the church website, two weeks ago there was a resource given by Pastor Heron on discerning God's will. And he talks through these things that can help shape us to consult God. And one of them are the people of God. We need the people of God. We need a humble dependence on God. If you've been coming to Morning Church in June, you've heard about the G3 groups. The G3 groups are the gospel groups, where the focus is not an issue, as Dr. Phillips would say, but the focus is an individual, Jesus, and how he speaks into those who are processing, those who are recovering, those who are needing support. As the G3 groups were talked about and as they're um, unfolding this fall, I think it'd be really important for every single person to hear what those groups provide and to not think, I know someone that might be good for, but to ask the question, could that be good for me? I think we need to consider any type of gathering where we can do life with others, whether it is a men's group, a Bible study, a parish gathering. And if there's not something that you know of, create something. We as a church need a posture of inviting and intruding. Whether you are single or you are married, whether you're young or you're old, you should be inviting people into your life, and even if it sounds intense, intruding into other people's lives because we need one another. People who are in isolation can't consult God because consulting God involves others. We need God's people. He's given us his people as a primary means of delivering us. In chapter 10, we'll read of war and the reason Gibeon was delivered was because now they had Israel. The night the Titanic sank, there were as I mentioned earlier, 1,500 people who lost their lives. 
And there were many, many things that went wrong. They ignored a lifeboat drill. Things were rushed. There was panic. It was, it was declared the boat that couldn't sink. One of the most interesting things about the Titanic was that there weren't enough lifeboats to get everyone off the ship. But it turns out only 60% of the lifeboats were used. All the lifeboats were used, but they were only filled 60%. The reason why was because whether someone was a cruiseman, first class, second class, third class, it's recorded that there were different people, even after the ship had hit an iceberg, who were told, you can get on a lifeboat, we've hit an iceberg, this ship is going to sink. And yet they said, I really don't think the Titanic can sink. There were people that day who were given a chance to be rescued, and yet they said, this thing's not going down. And so even though it hit at 1140, April 14th, three hours later, 2.20 a.m., April 15th, the, sink, the ship had completely submerged, and in the Atlantic, there was only darkness, cold darkness. And of the 705 survivors, they share something as well. Each of them, no matter their nationality, no, no matter their economic class, no matter their age, each of them said the same thing when they were rescued. I can't believe what just happened. For everyone here and for anyone who's listening online, your hearts are far more deceptive, far more prone to wander than you could ever imagine. And yet, our God's heart is determined to deliver us more than we could ever dare hope for. Pray with me. Father, help us be a people who bring things in our life before you, who don't live in the peril of pride and deception, but rather know how wayward we can be. And would we take advantage of all the means of grace you've afforded us, that we might be brought to repentance. Help us leave here knowing that we are prone to wander, that we do love deception. And yet under your mighty hand and through your son, Jesus Christ, you look to deliver us even from our own sin. Thank you for this story of tragedy and yet greater mercy. Pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.